Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you from Humboldt County, California, joined, as always, by Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Hey, David. So I'm really excited because this is the second Monday of the month, which means that we have Gloria Matera, our good friend and co-chair of the Green Party of the United States, on, on the program. Welcome, Gloria. Hi, David. Hi, Michael. So we got a lot to talk about, but before we jump into it, I want to remind you, the viewer listener, that if you're watching live on Facebook, you can join the conversation by dropping comments or questions into the chat. Michael O'Neill will be looking at that, harvesting particularly interesting or provocative questions or comments to either Gloria or myself or to Michael. In addition, we'll ask you, if you are on Facebook, please right now, Share this on your own page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to us on a podcast, remember to share that podcast with family, friends, and others as we continue to grow our audience. Last thing to remind you, go to the website, agreenwayforward.org, and sign up so that you can be kept abreast of upcoming guests, upcoming topics, uh, and promotional items that Michael and I are cooking up for you. So let's jump right in, Gloria. I'm really excited because you apparently have some news about a potential new bill that could grant Texas Greens ballot access. Tell us about that. That is absolutely right. Your home state, David, probably one of the most onerous places for independents, candidates and Greens to get on the ballot. Uh, there's a bill, I'm just going to check the number, HB 2504. It has passed the um Assembly, the House in the Texas legislature, this bill essentially will lower the signature requirements significantly for independent candidates to get on the ballot. It's Right now, it's been 83,000 signatures uh, with lots of other restrictions and challenges we can talk a little bit about. But um, this will not only lower the signatures, but it will be retroactive to 2018, where... Um, the Green Party candidate, I think it was for the Railroad Commission, uh, Martina Salina, got 2%. So in effect, the Texas Green Party will automatically become a ballot status party in Texas. Right. And so let's subdivide those two things because this bill actually is super exciting. Number one, as you say, it lowers the requirement to get on the ballot significantly. Uh, And again, Texas is one of the five so-called grizzly bear states to actually get on the ballot. It's always taken tremendous time, effort, and resources to get on the ballot. But even uh, as great as that is, and it's great, it also does an amazing thing because it lowers the ballot access retention from 5% for any statewide race all the way down to 2%. And as Gloria mentioned, it's retroactive. And let's lift up Martina Salinas who actually got over 2% in the last election cycle, which would, if, if it is in fact retroactive, would mean Greens would be on the ballot guaranteed in the upcoming election. Do I have that all right, Gloria? You certainly do. And we are so excited about this. Now, of course, it's going to committee in the Senate. Uh, we're trying to find out which committee. We haven't yet. I don't know if it's been assigned, uh, but it will then, of course, if it if it goes into the Senate and passes that's significant, and and we don't know if there'll be enough time uh, before you know the end of the session. So the Texas Green Party has already putting a, a call out, uh, talking about this significance. Uh, the national party is really behind this. Our ballot access committee is monitoring it closely. So you know we feel this could be groundbreaking, and we want to be able to reach not just Green Party members in Texas, but people in Texas who can lobby their state legislature, um, elected officials, because, you know, this is groundbreaking for political independence in general. No doubt about it. And it also lifts up for me the idea that Richard Winger of Ballot Access News is constantly uh, trying to tell people, and that is it is infinitely easier and more successful historically to engage the legislative process to lower thresholds to ballot access than it has been for litigation. So often the, the lawsuits are the things that get the attention and uh, and you raise money for people to try to do uh, the ballot access lawsuits to litigate your way onto the ballot. 
but legislatively it's much cheaper and it is usually more successful. It, I, yes, it is. Richard Winger has said that. Uh, we've had many talks about that. It is often hard for me to think about that when you kind of th- we all think about our state legislatures uh, and how challenging they can be, how uh, strict the electoral laws are, uh, except for the two corporate parties, Democrats and Republicans. I'm, I'm sorry as I don't know the origins of how this bill got started, uh, whether the libertarians are involved or, also, or often um, you know, a party, you were able to put those things together. So if uh, there are any Texas comrades out there uh, watching the show, and I hope you are, you know, that little bit of backstory would be really important for us to hear. So if you do know that backstory, uh, folks, we are inviting you to drop that information into the comments uh, of the Facebook live stream. If you're watching live, we would love to know that. So David, um, I think you have a little story. Do you want to tell your little story about getting on ballot in Texas? Well, you know, uh, I do actually. It's it's uh, one of the uh, one of the what I would say is one of my proudest organizing moments. You know, back in uh, 2000, I quit my law practice in order to manage Ralph Nader's presidential campaign that year, uh, and uh, we had the earliest deadline. Uh, And people were on pins and needles because we had such onerous restrictions. Because remember, not only uh, in in that year, uh, we needed uh, 38,900 valid signatures, which usually means about double that amount, right? But here's the kicker, Gloria. Not only did we need 38,000 signatures, but to be a valid signer under the old law, the law that we were operating under, it still is the law, you had to be already registered to vote. But, and get this, you had to have not voted in either the Democrat or the Republican Party primary. In other words, you had to care enough to register to vote, but be so disengaged that you didn't actually vote in the primary. You couldn't register somebody after the fact. And if they had voted in the Democratic or the Republican Party primary, um, the the reality is that you could not get them. So, and if, if that's not bad enough, we only have 75 days to do it. And uh, back in 2000, I am proud to say that the Green Party of Texas, in an all-volunteer effort with no paid signature gatherers, we collected 76,100 signatures in 75 days. To this moment, it is still arguably the single most impressive bit of just grassroots organizing that I've ever personally been involved with. And I thank you for your opportunity, uh, Gloria, uh, to share that. Uh, story. It it, uh, it always makes me smile to remember that. Yeah, it's, it's a great one. And, you know, kudos to you and all those volunteers that did that work. And, you know, fingers crossed and a lot of organizing is going to be done, uh, I think, in the next few days where it's really critical uh, to, you know, to lobby that this bill goes to the Senate and passes. All right, comrades, if I seem a little... Um less engaged than usual. It's because I'm attempting to monitor in real time some of the live streams around the Venezuelan embassy, which is a topic that we wanted to discuss this evening. Um, But before we get to that, uh, just on the issue of, uh, we've been talking about ballot access for the Green Party. As Greens, we also are fighting for a better ballot for voters across the country to have more fair uh, voting systems like ranked choice voting with proportional representation, single transferable vote, And uh, as it so happens, both in New York City, where Gloria resides, and in Humboldt County in California, where David resides, uh, we uh, have had some progress on those efforts and and definitely some updates to share. So, Gloria, can we start with New York City? Can you talk about uh, what are the conditions under which ranked choice voting specifically is being looked at in New York City and how Greens are engaging with those developments? Yes. I, uh, in New York City, we're, we're not able to have a people's referendum referendum on the ballot. Uh, the way things can be changed are, are around voting systems and, and many, many other things is through a revision of the city charter. Uh, so a charter revision commission was put together by the city council, uh, which is a kind of usually more open uh, and inclusive about uh, looking at, at different changes than kind of when the mayor puts that together and included in that charter revision is a recommendation for right choice voting um, 
at this point, when they published that, it uh, said they're looking at it possibly just for primaries and special elections, uh, possibly looking at it for general elections, raised some questions about that. And so the now that that report is out, what's been happening the past two weeks is that they have been holding public hearings in the five boroughs of New York City where um, the Green Party, our, our local Green Party, have been present at every single one. And the next one, last one, is tomorrow night in Staten Island. And so we're really excited about that. And obviously we have uh, our own demands that we're talking about, that ranked choice voting in all the general elections uh, from the citywide to city council is what really is democratizing elections. And that just having ranked choice voting for primaries and special elections, which is kind of a way to save money also for the city, is really just giving yet another unfair advantage to the two corporate parties. And that's who will benefit from it. And let's just underline that motive uh, before we transition to Humboldt County, Gloria. So this pr- the motivation for adopting ranked choice voting in these citywide primaries, it's not out of a burning passion for more fair voting systems for the people of New York City, right? Can you talk a bit about why actually a lot of this comes from a kind of political calculation around the cost of primaries in New York City? Correct. Although I will say there are a couple of commissioners, uh, some we know uh, for a long time, that actually do care about democratizing uh, our electoral system. But in general, what happens, and we have such low voter turnout and apathy that in a primary or in a special election, another thing that's happening here in the city tomorrow, that so few voters come out that someone doesn't really win with a majority. Uh, Therefore, there needs to be a quote unquote runoff, but the runoff is just yet another election winner to take all. The cost to the voters is, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars to do that. Uh, And then kind of prolonging how the, you know, kind of primary quote or primary season goes to get to that winner. Uh, So really this is an attempt to make that process go a little smoother, not cost as much in terms of taxpayer money. I wouldn't say that the main goal in being talked about in the majority, you know, of the majority parties is about saving money. And, and, you know, if that, if that's the thin edge of the wedge to get it in there, right, we'll take it. Well, well, greens will take any opening that we can get. Um, And it's great that you're using this opportunity to advocate for ranked choice voting and more fair voting systems throughout all elections, and especially in the general elections, not just in the primaries. Uh, Gloria, is there anything that you can point to people online where people in New York City or anywhere else can can take a look at how this process is developing? Um, uh, we have uh, Facebook events that have been put out for you know, the testifying in each borough, and that can kind of lead to also give you links to um, what the bill, you know, what the potential charter revision will be, where the hearings are. They're also at uh, gpny.org, our Green Party of New York. There's some videos there of Greens who have already currently testified about that. And uh, just to kind of, you know, kind of wrap that up, I want to say that when we testify, we always make sure we talk about proportional representation and the importance of that, because we know, as we've talked about even on this show, that right choice voting does start to give more voter choice and more candidates an opportunity uh, you know, to win, but it's not necessarily going to really be a game changer for independent candidates and Green Party candidates. Really, it's uh, kind of sharing power in local government through proportional representation that we feel is the ultimate way to democratize elections. Thank you for that, Gloria. Now, uh, David, in Humboldt County in California, uh, there's also been some moving forward on ranked choice voting and and more fair voting systems, uh, but through a different process, a different angle than where we have in New York City, where the city council started this charter commission. Uh, David, can you tell us about uh, what uh, Greens and other allies for ranked choice voting have been working on in Humboldt County? Yes, absolutely. And I'm really uh, excited uh, to share that what we have actually is two things happening, both at the state level and then locally, us in Humboldt County taking advantage of that. So in California, like most states, I know New York uh, as well, the the process of how one votes in local elections is a, a 
is a function of whether you're a what's known as a general law or a uh, charter city. Charter cities have the authority to make determinations on what type of voting system to use, single transferable vote, proportional representation, a, a pure preferential voting system, or the horrific uh, first-past-the-post winner-take-all system. Uh, if you are a general law city, the state legislature uh basically mandates what you do. Now, in California, uh, what we've seen is a lot of momentum at the local level in charter cities uh, to move to ranked choice voting. Uh, and we have already four cities that are using it. Um, uh, in the last uh, legislative session in uh, California, we were able to get what's known as a permissive bill at the state level that would have changed the state law to allow general law cities to actually decide whether to use preferential voting. Now, I know that's a bit in the weeds legally, but it's a huge thing because it would allow most jurisdictions that are that are uh, general law to actually be able to choose it. And this needs to be said. Democratic-controlled Senate, Democratic Party-controlled uh, House, Democrat uh, Jerry Brown in the governor's mansion, we were able to get it through the House or the Assembly, we're able to get it through the state Senate, and Governor Brown vetoed it. Uh, but but we did not stop. We continued uh, to agitate. It got reintroduced. Uh, and with uh, now that uh, Gavin Newsom is the governor, who has made a lot of promises to a lot of progressives, uh, we are really uh, pushing forward on that front. And we decided that we would take advantage of the tremendous victory in Maine. And as local organizers in Humboldt County, I've mentioned before that we do a progressive movie night uh, with a local yoga studio that is very friendly to us. So we showed the film, The Battle for Ranked Choice Voting, uh, and invited our county election administrator to come and answer questions because we knew, and frankly, I knew because I was tracking it, that our county was going to be putting out a request for proposal for new voting equipment. Right. So I wanted to have a big showing of the community uh, to show our election administrator that there was a lot of support for preferential voting as a system to make sure uh, that the re request for proposal that was accepted could accommodate rank choice. Michael, I'm really happy to tell you that we flooded that yoga studio. It was standing room only. Uh, the fact that uh, we had an elected official, a Green Party uh, city council person there, helped uh, in large part to basically get an agreement from the election administrator that there's no doubt whether we choose to do this or not, uh, we should at least have the option and the opportunity. So, a, again, a procedural sort of thing, but by doing the work of organizing and educating, we were able to convince an elected official uh, to to make sure that we were compatible for preferential voting. And because it was so exciting, a lot of people who had never uh, been involved uh, in the either Cooperation Humboldt or the local Green Party, uh, that rank, Battle for Ranked Choice Voting movie made so much sense. We got a small little group together, and now the city of Eureka has actually passed a resolution in support of that state bill, Right. Four Democrats, one Green on that city council. But again, because of the kind of persistent, persuasive slash, frankly, holding people accountable, uh, we were able to make the case for just good governmental policy. And we're moving that uh, uh, that along. So both at the state level and the local level, we, we got a resolution and support. And get this, now there's conversation about whether or not to use the initiative process in the city of Eureka to use ranked choice voting and organized labor is at the table uh, to talk about can we get Greens, progressive Democrats, socialists and organized labor to basically work together on a uh, ballot initiative. Exciting stuff. Oh, terrific, David. Those are Absolutely. Those are really encouraging developments. And while, you know, talking about charter law versus general law and voting machine uh, procurement requests, these are not the topics that make people into Twitter superstars, but they are absolutely the kind of things that Greens need to keep their eye on and need to engage with 
because if we don't, no one else will. I mean, you have a group like FairVote out there that's you know doing wonderful work and providing wonderful resources to uh, you know folks who are are fighting for preferential voting systems and fair representation voting systems. And I want to give a shout out to Tina who wrote in the chat to encourage people to look up FairVote and get their activist toolkit and pledge sheet to educate and get pledge signatures uh, for. Uh, uh, more fair voting representation systems. But as you said, David, up to this point, it's been the, the Democrats who have been the barrier towards uh, towards getting the option for preferential voting systems into state law. And so it's it's got to be us. And when people say, oh, why, why don't the Greens work with Democrats? Hey, we're working with rank and file Democrats all the time. It's the elites in the state legislatures and the state governments and certainly the federal government who, you know, the vast majority of them are a barrier to the kind of reforms that would open up our country towards multi-party democracy, while at the same time telling us Greens that, uh, you know, it's, it's a two-party system. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, way to go, David. And uh, I just wanted to give a brief update. I'm seeing here on Twitter that at the Venezuelan uh, embassy in the United States here, uh, bolt cutters have been produced by the fire department. And uh-huh. so uh, people are anticipating at any moment, and maybe it's already happened, uh, that the, uh, the the bolts on the doors might be cut off. So strength and solidarity to the uh, to the uh, Code Pink activists and, and uh, also uh, Greens who uh, are in the Venezuelan embassy as, as protectors. And uh, actually, maybe this is a, a good time to transition to that topic, unless, David, you had just a, a final thought or... No, no, I think you're right. Let's let's jump right into this because this is breaking news. So I'm going to ask you, Gloria, I know that you had done a little bit of research just before we went on the air. Uh, so what I'm going to do is ask you, Gloria, to tell us what you know up to that moment. And then I'll kick it back to you, Michael, for uh, and, and actually ask if you will, Michael, even as Gloria and I talk, if you'll take a look so we can report to people live what we know. So, Gloria, before we went on the air just uh, 10 minutes ago, what was the latest status? So, right, the latest thing that had been happening was, you know, I think there's 34 days that the uh, Embassy Protection Collective has been there. Uh, just recently, a letter came out from them, uh, you know, they, they want circulated that they're sending out to say, basically, you know, there's two ways to resolve this um, that we see. One is to go, I think, what they're calling the um, kind of uh, protection power agreement. Uh, so that that the, the Venezuelan embassy here in D.C. Uh, will be protected, uh, that it will not be taken over and given over to, uh, you know, what the U.S. seems to think should be the um, the elected government uh, in Venezuela, the Guaido people. I can see um, how the, that those supporters have really been becoming more aggressive, uh, both in disrupting and disturbing at all hours the you know people uh, who are living uh, legally in the embassy at the embassy's invitation, you know the other option, of course, which I'm now concerned about by Michael's reporting, is that they will um, you know Secret Service or other authorities will forcibly come in there. Um, we understand that they you know the are the are pe- the people in there are not going to you know resist, but they you know, will be exercising their their rights to stay in there. What's been going on, I guess, the past couple of days, uh, Sherry Hankala, the Green Party's uh, vice presidential candidate in 2012, uh, got down there with, you know, funds that uh, the parties helped with, with her people's, poor people's army. The first thing they did was to go into PEPCO and demand that electricity be turned back on. They turned the electricity off a few days ago. Uh, there seemed to be a, an agreement with the company, the electric company, to do some negotiating with the people in the embassy to get those the electricity turned back on. Uh, Sherry's people have been present with with other uh, supporters. Uh, I think we you heard from uh, Ursula Rosen last week uh, a little bit about that. And now they, my understanding is Sherry was planning on going to the uh, the water authority because uh, to make sure that the water is stays on or is turned back on uh, that people in the embassy are safe because you know losing water and electricity uh, can be very serious for people especially if they have any medical conditions uh, but I think the latest um, from what I have seen right before we got an air is possible um, is, is sherry being escorted by some uniformed 
people, whether they're Secret Service, whether they're the NYPD in D.C., I don't know. And that's, I think, when we got on the air uh, and Michael started looking into what's happening now. So before we go to Michael, folks, I just want to remind you that the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. is actually considered sovereign Venezuelan territory, just as U.S. embassies in other countries are considered uh, sovereign U.S. Uh, soil. That's the way that international uh, relationships work. Those embassy protectors are there at the invitation of the duly enacted and duly elected Venezuelan government. So regardless of what we may think about what's going on in Venezuela, regardless of what you may think about policy positions and so forth, the reality is that those individuals are embassy protectors there at the invitation of the Venezuelan government. So this is a very serious issue that we're talking about. Michael, I'm going to turn to you to ask you, uh, what do we know that is happening right now? Well, I've glanced at the live stream and I saw uh, about a maybe a dozen uh, police officers who were uh, all right up against the door of the embassy building and looking inside of it with flashlights because, of course, the power is cut off inside of the building. And uh, it doesn't appear that they have dismantled the doors, uh, but they are examining the mechanism of the structure and deliberating about what their next steps are, apparently. So that's the most I can glean at this point. So I want to give, again, a big shout out to the embassy protectors that are actually there putting their bodies on the line to try to prevent uh, this completely unconstitutional and illegal activity being taken on apparently by either the Secret Service and or uh, the Washington, D.C. District Police. But make no mistake about it, this is absolutely illegal activity that is actually taking place. And it's up to us to make sure that we raise some hell about this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, David. I, I'm hoping people will, uh, after tuning in here, will follow on Facebook or any other way you can do that and, uh, you know, send solidarity greetings. We'll be monitoring this. I want to give a shout out to my fellow co-chair um, on the national party, Margaret Flowers, who's been in there from the beginning. And we just want to make sure everybody's safe, both inside the embassy and outside, because as we have heard previous reports, uh, that those supporting the embassy protectors are getting harassed, uh, getting shoved around, getting roughed up by the Guaido supporters that are there. And the, we know that the police secret service are doing actually nothing and, in fact, arresting some of the supporters of the embassy protectors. Well, uh, as we continue here on a green way forward, uh, we'll provide updates as uh, we get them. And I do want to talk a bit uh, looking into the future here um, as we talk about some of our immediate concerns and the immediate crises. Uh, we do have an opportunity this fall in September for looking in a, a more strategic perspective at a, a, a vision for a more just and sustainable world through the lens of eco-socialism. That's the Eco-Socialism Conference coming up in Chicago, Illinois on September 28th. Uh, Gloria and David are both co-founders of that uh, conference or co-conveners of that conference. And uh, David and Gloria, any uh, updates on the on developments with the, the conference in terms of confirmed speakers and programming? And, uh, and then I, we want to take a little deep dive into one of the topics that we think that will be uh, engaged with that weekend in a very juicy way. Well, first, I want thank you, Michael, for that. And I want to uh, acknowledge the great work that Gloria has done. And I want to really lift up Rich Whitney, a Green Party leader in Illinois. Uh, many uh, viewers, listeners will remember Rich Whitney as the Green who got over 10 percent of the vote in a gubernatorial run in Illinois a few years back. He's a longtime red and a longtime green. Uh, he's been uh, at it since jump. Uh, also, Melissa Figueroa or Mel Figueroa. People may remember her as the press director for the Stein Baraka campaign. Gloria and I and Michael all worked very intimately uh, with Mel. And wait, there's more because I wanna, uh, also want to mention Anita Rios, another co-chair of the Green Party of the United States, and Margaret Kimberly, 
uh, one of the editors of the Black Agenda Report. So uh, Gloria and I had some really great other co-conveners who are a part of leading this. And in addition to the conveners and the co-conveners, we've got confirmation that Bruce Dixon, a longtime Green, a former Black Panther uh, managing editor of the Black Agenda Report and leader in the Green Party of Georgia. He's going to be participating. Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson and uh, Jerome Scott of the League of Revolutionaries for a, for a New America. In addition to that, uh, we have confirmation uh, from Surin Mudalar, who is the editor of uh, the journal Socialism and Democracy. So we've got some fantastic folks lined up uh, uh, to co-present and also uh, Eric Rydberg representing the Young Eco-Socialist and happy to report that the Young Eco-Socialist have formally joined as organizational co-sponsors, joining the Green Party of Illinois as organizational co-sponsors. So uh, before we even get into the politics, and I'm excited about that, I can tell you there's a lot of momentum here. Yeah. I, I don't think I could add anything. So, but the people should go to the um, check a, the, the you know the Facebook event and start saying letting us know that you're coming because of you know it's a obviously a, a space that can only hold a certain amount of people and you know we anticipate filling that space um, you know to the utmost. And is this conference just for Greens or just for hardcore eco socialists? Uh, who's going to benefit from this conference? Uh, well. Uh, it's opened. Obviously, we t- we say it's you know a conference you know by greens for greens, but it's open to everyone. If you consider yourself an eco socialist, if you're wondering what eco socialism is about, or you know you just want to go deeper into what that really you know really means and what that means in terms of the Green Party, a political party, uh, then it's really open to everyone that fits in those categories. But I want to really push hard here, Michael, because I appreciate your good strategic question. It is, as Gloria said, by Greens for Greens. We want to be clear. This is a strategic gathering for Greens to go deep on eco-socialism. So goal one is to continue to educate ourselves and other Greens about what eco-socialism is and how we can use eco-socialism to grow the Green Party. Second, we are absolutely open uh, to uh, people who are socialists or eco-socialists who are open to learning more about the Green Party. So it is casting a fairly wide net, but it is a strategic conversation. But we are not interested in people who to come to debate whether or not the Green Party should exist. We are not debating whether we should be eco-socialists. So if you are... Uh, uh, committed to some other party formation. This is not the place for you. And if you don't agree with eco-socialism, this is not the place to debate that. This is a strategic conversation by Greens, for Greens, and Green-friendly people to go deep on what we should be doing in this historic moment. So let's take a moment and talk about this relationship between eco-socialism and the Green Party, specifically as a political party. But before we do that, I just want to quickly say uh, from the Code Pink Twitter account, uh, they have announced that the police have given an official order to the the Venezuelan uh, embassy protectors that they must leave immediately or face immediate arrest. So that is where the situation is developing on the ground there. So back to the Eco-Socialist Forum in September 28th in Chicago, Illinois. Um, How do we connect Eco-Socialism as a vision and as a political program to electoral work? Where do we see the opportunities for electoral campaigns, whether it's in the short term or the long term, and I think we should talk about both, towards advancing an Eco-Socialist platform? Gloria, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, thank you, Michael. Um, you know, I th- I think kind of looking kind of historically, uh, you know, at political parties and and their and their role in kind of a, a revolutionary uh, time or a pre-revolutionary time. You know, what we're looking at right now is people are looking at socialism. They are definitely um, feeling the in, 
brunt of capitalism, both in terms of the depletion of our natural resources and the oppression of people in this country and all over the world. Uh, and so I think when we talk about eco-socialism, that's what we're talking about is, you know, that same capitalism and the, and the thirst for, for greed and profit is really what's doing that both for people and planet. And I think when you think about a political party, they, you know, as a political party, I think historically they, they have a program. You know, we have a program as Greens and we're, I think, continuing to refine and develop that program along an eco-socialist, you know, plane. We do have that in our platform, but, you know, to be honest, we still have to continue to refine that and deepen that. And having that kind of a program and running candidates on that program, as opposed to the other corporate parties that run individual candidates and how much money they can make, I think really makes the uh, case for a political party having a real piece there. And I think, you know, something we've talked about before, and maybe David wants to comment too, is, you know, that um, trying that balance between being an electoral party and using elections as the tool uh, to advance this agenda and being an activist party, being in, in the streets. And I'll just kind of end by David knows I, I'm very, I was very, um, influenced by a book called Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, where the um, League of Black uh, Revolutionary Workers um, really tried to, to balance some of this and to take some of this on as, as they were growing and getting more influence you know, in the, uh, the factories in Detroit and in the communities in Detroit. And Gloria, I want to thank you for that insight and for introducing the term revolutionary into the conversation, because that's exactly where I want to go with David. Eco-socialism, as we've been discussing it on this show, and I believe as it will be discussed uh, in September at the conference, is a revolutionary program. Now, we are nonviolent revolutionaries, uh, but it is a revolutionary program nevertheless. And there are people who express skepticism that elections can be used towards a revolutionary program at all in advancing that cause. David, what's your response to that? Well, uh, it's a great question. And like you, Michael, I really appreciate Gloria really talking about revolution and revolutionary. Uh, That's one of the things we want to do at this conference. You see, I am a believer that revolutions don't just happen. They are they happen when there are processes uh, that are bigger than individuals, but individuals have to seize moments where there are opportunities for things to, to, to bust wide open. Uh, the 1960s, uh, when the League of Revolutionary Black Workers uh, were fighting both the United Auto Workers uh, and the uh, General Motors and Dodge and the various uh, corporations, both at the same moment, all that was happening because there were social movements that were actually taking place. And what they recognized was that you have to engage electoral politics as well. And I really want to parse this. I believe that we should engage in electoral politics, but only as unabashed revolutionaries calling to restructure society. We should never shy away from the fact that our commitment as eco-socialists, our commitment as Greens and our four principles of peace, justice, democracy, and ecology, those really are revolutionary. We're talking about restructuring society. Now, as Michael says, we are nonviolent revolutionaries, but I do not shy away from the fact that I am a revolutionary, and I'm trying to normalize that conversation, not only in elections, but in pool halls, in bowling alleys, uh, at diners, uh, in, in taxi cabs, anywhere I am, I'm trying to have that conversation. And the reason that there should, in my opinion, be an electoral uh, formation is because that's where most people think politics is done. Now, I say it all the time this way. If you want systemic, transformational, revolutionary change, and all you ever do is go and pull a lever every two to four years, you're wasting your time. But Michael, there's a corollary to that. If you want systemic, transformational, revolutionary change, and you don't take advantage of voting, if there's a candidate calling for revolutionary change on your ballot, you're wasting an opportunity. So it's neither either or, it's got to be both and. But the both and, electoral politics and social movement and social change have actually got to be linked 
And that's the role of a genuine revolutionary political party. Thank you, David. And just to add my two cents, I see three immediate wins that we can accomplish by running competitive green candidates on an eco-socialist platform. One is we're continuing to normalize eco-socialist platforms, uh, our, our platform and, and programs, and like the Green New Deal, as Greens have been running on since uh, 2010. And two, as we get elected, uh, if we're able to pass legislation to implement policies that strengthen the working class and and strengthen our environment to enable working people to have more resources to fight against the system, that's a win. And number two, for those things that we are not able to implement because of either crackdowns from higher levels of government or from things like capital strikes, whereby corporations and investors withdraw their money from regions because they don't like the policies that are being implemented, that further exposes the lie of the supposed democracy that we are living in and will help further radicalize folks and get people uh, in a position to fight back. Uh, any, any more thoughts on... There is a relationship between a, a specifically the Green Party as a political party and eco-socialism and uh, where you're hoping this conversation can go in September. Uh, Gloria, any final thoughts from you about the conference? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think the, the, you know, calling it a kind of a strategy, as David did, um, where we're going to have some really deep discussions. Obviously, we know it's, you know, it's one day and those discussions can go on, but I'm also hoping that um, out of the conversations we're having, uh, that we can actually look at, a, you know, a grouping of people that will come together in this in the Green Party uh, to continue to develop this, to provide political education, to interface both on the, you know, their state level and their local level and see how that works nationally. Because I do think that uh, even within our own party, there's kind of varying degrees of understanding um, if people can't come to this conference or they feel like they're, you know, they're not ready for that kind of deep discussion, that coming out of that conference, we are obligated to find ways to bring this, I, these ideas um, to the wider green community to understand that. And I think it can be helpful to candidates. Uh, I think we need to think about how we can continue to infuse that, like it's already been happening with kind of how to run on the Green New Deal conversation. I think. Uh, making sure eco-socialism is in there very directly is another big part of that. And so um, I'm really very excited about it and, and working with David and, and the other uh, conveners at this conference. So I've before just... we go to the last topic, I, I want to jump in and, and make two quick points. One, kudos to you, Michael, for actually reminding us and reminding viewers and listeners that revolutionary process has to be about class. And when we talk about class, what I'm talking about is the owning class versus everyone else. So at the end of the day, what I'm really getting at is uh, the revolutionary process has to be about class consciousness and helping people to understand that there is a predatory owning class and everybody else, right? Uh, the second thing that is important as we talk about process it's not just a revolutionary process. It's also how do people know what they know and how do we win them over? I am absolutely committed to authentic revolutionary process and doing it in a way where you take people where they are and we patiently engage with them. I am absolutely committed that we not go down the sectarian road that so many other leftists have actually gone down that actually end up turning people off. So one of the things that we plan on modeling is how do you engage people in this conversation in a way that actually wins more people over both to the Green Party as well as uh, to uh, the process itself. And Michael, I understand you've got some breaking news yet again. Well, I just want to thank um, our uh, chat of participants uh, who said that there is a breach at the embassy in dc the code pink twitter account has confirmed that the locks uh, on the embassy building have been cut and so uh, we might be looking at um, police entrance into the building immediately um 
Code Pink, uh, as an organization, uh, describes itself as Women for Peace. Uh, it was been founded by women and uh, who've been doing amazing work uh, against U.S. imperialism and invasions uh, since at least uh, the of, invasion of Iraq in uh, 2003. And I just wanted to take a moment before we close, uh, Tracy, who I'm not sure if she's uh, still in the chat, wrote in to ask if, if we can take a moment to, to talk about the attack on women's rights going on in this country. She is feeling very scared for their, their future. Very scary legislation has been passed in Ohio and in Georgia, these supposed heartbeat bills where uh, abortions are, are being criminalized uh, when the uh, when a, a fetal heartbeat is detected, this can occur at six weeks before many even women realize that they're pregnant at all. And uh, this is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. And uh, what can we do uh, as the Green Party, as Greens, to push back against these attacks on women's reproductive rights. Uh, Gloria, any thoughts, any any response that you've heard from Greens in Ohio or from the National Party, uh, any messaging from the National Party about these uh, recent terrifying pieces of legislation? Uh, yes, thank you, Michael. Uh, you know, our, uh, Ohio Greens are uh, definitely, uh, you know, involved in, along with the groups, um, you know, reproductive rights groups that... Um, are fighting back against that. In fact, Anita Rios, uh, one of our co-chairs, has uh, long been, uh, you know, a champion in that movement, working in that movement, um, really even even kind of working in that in that world. Um, you know, the National Party obviously has a, you know has a strong opposition to this. So I'll be looking into uh, how we might be trying to coordinate some of what's happening and messaging in several of these states. And I really appreciate Tracy bringing that up. It is horrific. It's, you know, it's, it's the, another step towards fascism, you know, the handmaiden's tale, the whole business about how women are just um, really treated uh, in the, in a really terrible way. And we have to look at, obviously look at, um, you know, black and brown women, even, even more so uh, than the, oh, women, the female population in general, but not only the attack on reproductive, um, you know, reproductive ownership that women should have over their, make their own decisions. But we know also that that permeates through the economics uh, in terms of, you know, lower wages and, you know, many other forms of harassment and second class citizenry in what we say is the greatest democracy in the world. And so that, um, you know, it's it's a it's an infuriating and a very upsetting and scary moment when but this is happening. Thank you for that, Gloria. You know, I think it's also important that we really underscore and take seriously the word the F word. We have to say the F word in in public, and that is fascism. We are watching fascism emerge in this country. Remember that fascism is not merely totalitarianism, right? Uh, it is a political ideology about how to organize society. And what we are seeing is, and Benito Mussolini, the, fa the famous fascist dictator and philosopher, uh, famously said, fascism more appropriately should be called corporatism because it merges the economic might of our national corporations with the military might of the nation state. And, of course, he was a proponent of fascism. He was a proud fascist. What we are actually seeing now is the, the rise of fascism, uh, and it is not merely neoliberalism. It is economic. It is also uh, about ultimate uh, control over both the state and in this moment of, 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 of crisis, economic, ecological, and political crisis, I am convinced that we are either going to see fascism or eco-socialism. The old neoliberal uh, hold the center will not hold. It's going to break one way or the other. And that's why I have dedicated my life to try to building a local example of cooperative economics to prove that we can meet all of our needs in an ecologically sustainable way without exploitation and or oppression. And I'm desperate to confederate with other people in local communities doing the same thing, because ultimately, I'll say it again, it's going to be fascism or eco-socialism. As much as others may want to resist it, there's just not going to be a middle ground. 
Thank you, David. Gloria, do you have any uh, final thoughts uh, for the evening before we uh, draw the program to a close? Well, I mean, it was just really kind of um, just an amazing discussion to, to have with the two of you and to, to share with people who are listening. And But I just got to put in a plug for the Green Party annual meeting um, uh, in July, July 25th uh, through that weekend. It's in Salem, Massachusetts. If you can read about it, register, know what's, what's happening at uh, gp.org. We're just now putting together um, just an amazing array of workshops, talk, uh, having anti-oppression training, um, having candidate forums. So, uh, you know, we, we encourage Greens, obviously, from all over to be able to come, check out if there's a, a way for you to look for some uh, waivers or assistance in your local party or through the, uh, the annual meeting committee. But um, I'm really looking forward to being there and hoping to see um, lots of you there. Well, thank you for that, Gloria. I have added uh, the link to the convention website, salem.gp.org, to the chat, and we'll include that for the show notes for this episode. And I just want to thank you, Gloria, so much for coming on and uh, for joining us on the second Monday of the month. It's it's so valuable to have you for these regular check-ins with the National Party. And I want to thank everyone who has been uh, watching and participating and sending us live updates on the Venezuelan uh, embassy situation in the chat. So I'll join Michael in thanking Gloria Matera for coming on. Remember, she comes on the second Monday of every month uh, as a uh, as a guest here. We're really honored for that. I also want to thank you, the viewer, listener. And remember, with a hat tip to Gil Scott Heron, the revolution may not be televised, but it can be brought to you over non-corporately filtered sources of news, information, and analysis. And that's just exactly what a Green Way Forward is. So make sure that you share this uh, on your own live stream, uh, this live stream on your own Facebook page or any page that you manage. If it's a podcast, share the podcast, go to the website, a green way forward and sign up. Keep on keeping on peace. A green way forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 PM Eastern time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>